Welcome to the Enviro Health Podcast. Your host today is Joseph Levermore. Today we talk to Dr. Keng Tiong Ng, or otherwise referred to as Calvin, on his research about emerging chemical contaminants in wastewater. So Calvin, what are you looking forward to in the future? Well, that's a good question. Um, so basically, as you know, I, I just I finished my PhD a few years ago and then started as a postdoc, well, like three years ago. And then what I'm looking for, as in, do you mean in futures, what I'm looking for? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually looking for a secure job, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> con- honestly. That, that will provide me security to continue to stay in the UK and hopefully it will be staying longer at Imperia. What so. inspired you to do your PhD? Well, that's good things. To be honest, first, I was just fancy with the name, <laughs> the title, but apparently like after a few years of working on a PhD, it's just like a normal thing, but it's a good experience. I wouldn't say it's fun, but you learned a lot throughout the journey being in doing a PhD. Was there a point rather in your kind of educational history experience, as it were, where you thought that is exactly what I want to do or no? Mm, yes, I would say, well, it's chemistry. So basically I have a good tutor when I was in a college. So what she taught in a class, it's very interesting. That's how it inspired me to to, to look more about chemistry and then start to have more exposure in chemistry-wise and out like choosing chemistry for my PhD. So when you refer to college, what year was that? How old were you? Uh, oh, that's a tough one. It's just because the UK is a little bit different. Yes, it is. It was right after my secondary school. is was my foundation year, I would say. Mm-hmm. It was my foundation years. After year 12, what, what's it called? Year yeah, 13. Sure. So A-levels. A-levels, A-levels yes. Yeah. So did you study in the UK? Or? No, I don't. So basically, I I came to UK for my degree. Before that, I was, I was doing my study back in Malaysia. And yeah, so pretty much starting my degree, come to the UK, and then master and PhD and postdoc. Whereabouts in Malaysia are you from? Well, it's the capital, Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur, okay. Yeah. So when I think of Kuala Lumpur, I think of two really tall buildings. <laughs> yes, yes. Apart from that, it's it's a very hot country. It's a tropical rainforest country. If you like heat, it's a good place to visit. And because Malaysia population made up by three largest ethnicity groups, it's Malay, Chinese and Indian. So, of course, we have some minority. And then because of this multi-ethnicity, we have a lot of different kind of foods serving in, in Malaysia. So sometimes it's known as a food heaven as well, if mm-hmm. you like to eat. I can definitely, yeah. definitely vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> but with that, you must be able to speak so many different languages, right? Oh, yes, it is. Yeah, because Malay is our national language. So because my mother tongue is Chinese, so I know how to speak Chinese. And then Malay is what we need to know and English. So... Mm-hmm we speak three different languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As in Chinese speak different languages, three different languages. Like Malay, they usually speak like Malay and English too. Yeah. Sure. So how did you find it when you came to the UK to study for the first time? It's a bit of a shock. It's the culture shock, the first thing. So a lot of things different because I come from Asia country. A lot of things mm-hmm. are different. So the first thing come to my mind is that when I came to UK, is the, the weather is very cold unpredictable weather 
the second things would be like all the shops close at five. So it, it would never happen back in Malaysia. So all the shops open until 10 or 12. So when you finish your, your classes, you need to rush to 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 supermarket to get your grocery done before you get home, before everything's closed. So yeah, that's a bit of a shock. But at the end of the day, I do like staying in the UK. Else I won't be staying here for over 12 years now. So you've spoken about your college chemistry scientist or a chemistry teacher rather, and of being an individual that inspired you to go into chemistry. Mm. But is there anyone that you really think of, maybe internationally speaking, that was a scientist that kind of inspired you to go down the avenue that you've, you've led down? Or the, the area of research that you specialise in? Not really on top of my head, but I do have a lot of people I do like that actually helping me a lot that come into this stage. So when I first come to the UK, it was right after my my graduation and things like that, I come to the UK and then so continue my, my degree. So that degree times, I do have different lectures that also inspire me, but the main things that happened to me, I would say it's more like life-changing, is like being offered to, to the internship, a year of internship, that get to know more about chemistry. So previously, mainly it would be more about like theory base and things like that. So you learn a lot, but you don't really practice a lot you don't know how the real life really is until i i have a chance to went for a year of placement and know how it work and then that's the place the time that the building up more interest in this area so i wouldn't say it would be the person it would be the chance every time when you when you come to certain times there will be a chance and opportunity lying around that's how i end up like progress and during that placement what science were you working on? It's, I work in a they call like contractor manufacturer organization, which is like a small the, the industry. So they get a lot of contract like making like a small molecules for a different pharmaceutical company. So I was based in an analytical chemistry department to well assist the analysis for the chemist. So they send samples up. So we're gonna do tests, look for the purity and what they made and all these kind of things. So that's how I expose most about the analytical chemistry wise and also their instruments and things like that. And is that why you've inevitably ended up in the area that you're researching in now? Or Yeah, funny enough, those my placement, after my placement and master, I did my PhD in organic chemistry. So that's totally different from analytical chemistry. But mm-hmm. I still need to have some background in chemistry wise to support my my PhD work because what I meet in PhD as an organic chemist, you need to be evidently proof that you meet something that what you want. So you need to have some analytical backgrounds and knowledge to know about all these things. And just for the audience, would you mind just giving a, a kind of description of how these two things are very different areas of chemistry? You mean between organic chemistry and, and analytical chemistry? Okay, so. I always heard from what people saying, like you need a lot of organic chemistry in a company to make something, but you only need one or two analytical chemists to support them. <laughs> because in chemistry, you, you will rely mainly on instruments. So instrument will do most of the works for you. While organic chemistry is a lot of handheld work when you do manually by mixing and things like that. So I would say is one will be a cooking, cooker, a chef, the other one would be a test tester to pass the QC and things like that. 
So the cooker will be the organic chemist, mm-hmm. while the tester will be the anger chemist. That's a brilliant way of putting it, to be honest. <laughs> For our audience, obviously our podcasts are predominantly about how pollution impacts human health. That's really where we're, we're focusing in on. And we're trying to at least give the scientists that are doing this research a platform to speak to, to our audience. And you mentioned, and your research is predominantly about contaminants of emerging concern. And I think you could probably do so much better justice than I can. So I'll leave you the expert to explain what an emerging contaminant is and why is it of concern? Well, to my perspective, contaminant of emerging, emerging, emerging concern is basically is the chemicals that's actually persistently found in the environment that actually even after the treatment from the wastewater treatment plant, it could persist and happen to be found in the environment that would cause harmful to the public health as well as the ecologies as well. Mm-hmm. So that's how I understand from my perspective. Of so it's almost as if, if, if a chemical causes harm and it... And is it, it keeps persistently happen and, and, and found in the environment. It doesn't degrade over time, just like plastic. Sure. So plastic, you would think of it's just a normal plastic. What harm could it cause? But people would always forget one thing. It doesn't degrade over time. So it would just persistently happen presence throughout the year, throughout the whole life, throughout the mm-hmm. decades. It will still be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And worst case scenario, for instance, some of the emerging contaminant concern will be your antibiotics. So, so for instance, antibiotics, we all know that the resistance, how it come up from. The resistance is actually come up from the way people misuse it sure. and they take it, I mean, they, they take it and then they stop it and then that's how the bacteria and how the, the diseases evolve and all these things. So when we found that antibiotics is actually present, it doesn't degrade over time and then it back to the ecosystem mm-hmm. and we're going to take it back on again. So that's how we actually, we get it Get, get the bacteria or get the disease that evolve so quicker. Mm. So, yeah. And that's antimicrobial resistance, right? Yes. So it's a case of things that are newly found in the environment. But my main question then becomes, how do you identify something that's really emerging in the environment? Is it a case of a list that's put together by some form of governmental body or is it that you are now screening wide varieties so of chemical compounds? To answer that question, first of all, like there are thousands and billions of chemicals that we, we might not have even know that. But what actually come into our mind would be the list from what has been available and published and available to the public and there's something they call the eu watch list so the list being created is because those compounds as i mentioned before the c is it cause uh, yeah contaminant of emerging concern those are the compounds that that keep persistently happen and then causing the concern mm-hmm. to the EU member states. So that's how they create the list. So with the list, they will be able to tell, okay, those are the lists that been threatened our life. So we need mm-hmm. to look at that more closely. But it doesn't discount that other compound which doesn't include in the list is not harmful. Mm-hmm. It's just that they haven't yet to discover. Mm. Yeah. So it's almost like they're continually being updated. Yes, they update like once every two years. So okay. every two years they review what are the lists and whether they need to add on more compounds into the list. How many compounds are on there so At far? At the moment, for this year, there are 23 compounds. Yeah, for instance, like coronaphenic is one of the 
drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, they huh. use, but also some hormone drugs. You, you, it is actually one of also part of the list as well. So those are the things. It's a good example that that's always on the list. It doesn't remove. So when they put it something in the list, they need to do a lot of study and mm -hmm. a lot of data to support. Like, look, over this period of time, this drugs keep persistingly happen. We keep find these drugs, so we need to include those in the list. So, so when it comes to two years later, then they will include them. Those are not included. Maybe they don't have a sufficient data yet, but doesn't mean that they're not harmful yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is how it works. Have you had any involvement in, or have you ever had the opportunity to be involved in the watch list or the formulation of it? No, I don't. And also, not only because we are not funded by the EU member, and also we are not part of EU anymore. So true. That is very true. <laughs> <laughs> and then that kind of goes into where your work is focused where in some respects you're screening these samples for a wide variety of chemical compounds mm. and then some of which will be found on this list and some won't right yes correct so we we screen as mentioned before screen over 100 or 200 different compounds and mm. some of them is actually in the list some mm. they're not but obviously as i mentioned before those are not in the list doesn't mean that they're not harmful to the environment or they are yet to find any evidence to support the claim that it should be in the list. Mm -hmm. So we include them just because it, it seems to be like those are the common drugs we, we, we come across. Mm -hmm. So for example, the pesticide we use and some of the pesticides we include into the list for screening, some of them are actually banned from, from using in, in the EU, sure. but some people still use it discreetly. And then we don't know whether they use it discreetly or maybe some manufacturers, they use it as a precursor to make something else. So that's kind of, so your area or your kind of research interests have led you down the path of, at least in this context, in which we're obviously here today to talk about, is your research about investigating emerging contaminants in wastewater treatment facilities. Is that correct? Or Yes. So our group is pretty much interested looking at the contaminant, I would say, or pollutants that present in water or wastewater. So it's so I didn't know much about this until I started postdoc in, in Leon's group and then we get to do a lot of analysis on wastewater. Then I only found out like wow, that's amazing, like how much of things and what are things that we can find from wastewater. There's so much of information you can really dig and extract from the wastewater. Mm -hmm. So basically everyone know about like urine analysis and things like this is basically the same thing. What you eat is what you come out. So everything in the sewage and wastewater facilities, you will be able to re retrieve the information and what they eat and what they had before. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's amazing. Does your, have you ever been asked to do some work for like legal cases where you've tried to, been asked to identify compounds in the environment for potentially some person that's leached out or been using chemical compounds? Uh, not really. And also, I was in one of the study before where we trying to take some sample from a river and yeah. then we analyzed them in the lab. And when we trying to take some sample from a place or a river, the owner near that, that river, as in like just next to the river, they will stop them from taking it just because right. they worry if this has been published, they might be getting into trouble or they will worry like, okay, 
they actually really doing something discreetly that do not want anyone to find out, especially the Environment Protection Agency. Wow. If they find out, they might be in trouble. Mm. So, yes. So when you're taking sample, like for not for 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 research purposes, people already worry. So not mm. to mention mm -hmm. about like if you're gonna do for something for forensic purposes, there will be raising too much of a noise mm -hmm. afterwards. So yeah. How do you collect these samples? We get a bottle and then grab the sample from the river and then it's called grab sample. Yeah. So then when you're talking about filtration, you're going from what's the size of the samples that you're collecting? So we collect usually like we collect a, a f about like 500 ml bottle. It's a mm -hmm. nitrogen bottle. And after that, we took it in the lab and we, we either we add acid in it to acidify it so that the bacteria will not grow over time. And then we put it in the freezer and after that, when it's ready for the analysis, we remove from the freezer, let it torn, and then we just get take like one mil from from the five hundred to do a further sample preparations. Sure. But in fact, we only need like ten microliters. Not so much to analyze that. So then the biggest question becomes: What is a microliter? And how does it compare to a mill? It's very hard <laughs> to say that. I only know like, well, I found something very easy to explain. For one nan for, for nanogram per liters, sure. one nanogram per liters, you were thinking about a pinch of one gram of salt. That's a lot, yeah. If you're yeah. a salty lover, food lover, that's fine. So one gram of pinch of salt yeah. in 400 times Olympic size swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm trying to find that out. So, so yes. Yeah, that's 400 Olympic-sized swimming pool. And you're trying to find the salt? In a pinch of one gram salt. Wow. That's okay. what we know as one nanogram per liter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. Crazy. So immediate, immediately when I'm thinking of things that go in and come out, I'm thinking of potentially illicit drugs, yes. pharmaceutical agents. Yeah, it could be anything. So for illegal drugs or illicit drugs, uh, for instance, like what you eat would be metabolized. And then what you found in wastewater or sewage would be either the metabolite or the unmetabolic substance like cocaine and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a program, I mean, been run a long time ago. It's run by the EAMCDA. So it's the EU, that's a funded body. And then they look into illicit drugs consumptions in the whole EU country. So every year they publish or they, they send the results to EMCDA, so they publish it. So they were able to monitor the trends of certain drugs usage in a particular country and compare among the whole EU countries. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So the first thing that's obviously important to note is how once you've got this sample of wastewater from a, a sewage treatment facility or mm. plant, is how do you even detect them in the first place? So obviously to detect the wastewater, it will not be possible until you do like a first filtration and as in the pretreatments. So because when we get the wastewater, it's very, very dirty. And then obviously after you treated it, we need to use or rely on the instruments to help us on analysis. So to do that, we can't really inject or put whatever that we get from wastewater treatment plant into the system and run the analysis because it will eventually gonna spoil or clot the whole system. Mm -hmm. So what we normally do, we just do a simple filtrations and then which means that we filter a lot of big particulates and also what we get later will be 
further analyze them using the system. So basically it is the system that help us to analyze what the sample that it is and what are actually contained in the wastewater sample that we collected. And what is the system that you've been using? We're using something they call liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry. So they're both coupled to each other. They're big fancy words, but could yes. you describe what they do? So, well, LCMS, or in short, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, is an analytical instrument. So in LC-wise, or liquid chromatography, you can imagine like something like a water filter. So like if you're trying to filter something from a, a lot of mixtures in a sample into individual one, you run through the water filter cartridge. That's how you separate them individually before it's actually detected by another instrument we know as mass spectrometry. So how the mass spectrometry work, I wouldn't be able to explain in a much detail in a scientific way, but actually it's actually measure its masses after it has been separated by the liquid chromatography. You purify your sample from 500 mils down to 10 microliters. You introduce that into the LC or the LCMS, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. And then effectively what you're trying to do is you're finding nanogram per liter concentrations of cocaine yes. or there are extrutory or urinary metabolites. And that is giving you an understanding of the concentration of different yes. pharmaceutical agents across a population. Yes, the community lifestyle, yeah. their health status, what they consume, whether wow. they're alcoholics in that, in that particular catchment sure. and all these kind of things. So, yeah. And the idea is then is to validate a method in order to be able to identify these compounds. Yes. So whatever we do in a lab, first, when we develop the method, once the method has been developed, we need to validate them before we really apply them onto the sample to make sure they're actually working. And then obviously there's a certain guideline we, we follow, like the core ICH guideline, International Conference Harmonizations, that's what they call ICH guidelines. So those are the guidelines being followed the whole world, I would say. So with that, once we, we validate that using that guideline, it should be any problem, shouldn't be any problem to use them for our sample analysis. And I know maybe this is quite a difficult question to ask, but would you be able to just give a brief overview of how that guideline works in reality? Once you've got your compound and you've attempted to identify it, how do you compare between the compound of that you've identified in comparison to the guideline, for example? So the guideline, just to tell you like what are the stages and what are the things you need to do in order to validate the method. So in order to make sure we detect something, it is what we detect, we usually get some standards in. The standard, which is the pure standard, we know what it is. And then we, we, we run them on the system and then once we get a certain result, then we compare them with the, with the samples that we run. So by then we'll be able to know if it is really the, the, the compounds that we're really looking for is really present mm -hmm. in, in the sample. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once you, so for this investigation, for this study, how many compounds were, your, were you looking for in these wastewater treatments? Like? We look for a lot of compounds. The compounds that have been published on the paper, 137 compounds been found and been validated and we can detect them. But in wastewater-wise, obviously it's not 137 in total we can find. But we, we 
the method that we use, we can validate up to 137 compounds. And was this purely more of a validation for future work, or was it? How how does the the study sit, as it were? What was the concept of it? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like first we were thinking like, okay, look, there are a lot of methods that are using a similar technique to to look at the wastewater. So why don't we just find a way to shorten the the sample prep and shorten the analysis time, so that we can so that we can use it for high throughput analysis. So that's why we end up develop this method and then we can apply this on a long-term basis if we're going to use it for like lots of sample screening and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I would say it would not be more like a validation, but it would be more on like a future use. If we're going to use it for real-time analysis, we can do it in a thousand or hundred of samples. But you did look at three different sites from three different countries. Is that correct? Yes. And did you find any real comparisons or how did they compare across these three different sites? You mean the compounds that we found? Yeah, for the compounds that you've attempted to identify. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we we found a lot of different things. So because obviously it's different countries. So one of the things can be picked up, it will be the illegal drugs. So... So some, some of the illegal drugs, for example, ketamine and MDMA, we found it in London wastewater treatment plants. While once we analyzed the other two sites, we, we found out like methamphetamine, it's widely used in those two countries compared to London. So there are more than that. So illegal drugs is just one of the examples. There are other kinds of drugs and pharmaceuticals that actually predominantly used by those countries, but not in in London, you know. Sorry, would you mind just saying which countries you looked at? We look at the USA, one of the suburban wastewater treatment plants, and also Mexico. And the United Kingdom as well? And United Kingdom is London, yeah. Sure. So the, the main thing that kind of stood out for me, I suppose, is the, the mapping of the cocaine consumption across London. <coughs> and at least in the paper you mentioned how there seems to be potentially a plateau in the use of cocaine, at least for this population. Maybe you Mm. can talk a little bit about why you think there is a a plateau in consumption and also maybe the the amount of people that this wastewater treatment facility serves. Mm. And is it respective of London in its entirety? Sorry, there's a few questions Mm. there. So basically, why we say there's a plateau is when we're trying to compare the data that we have generated in 2019 with the data we had in 2016. Mm-hmm. When we compare the sort of like cocaine metabolites and also cocaine, it, it found out like they're both having no much of the significant difference. That's why we say there might be a plateau, a hit. That's why, that's what we, we, we concluded. So in terms of, what was your next question? Your next question would be? Was, is that, wastewater treatment plant realistic or representative rather of London as a whole? I wouldn't say it would represent London as a whole. It depends how big is the wastewater treatment plants that you actually sample the taking the sample from. So for instance the 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 sample that we took it from is only represented like about forty percent of the population in London, central London. Obviously it's not represented the whole city. And if you really extrapolate it, it will be more than what it claimed on the paper of the consumption of cocaine in a week, 
in the population. Yeah. And how much was that? It's approximately 12 kilograms of cocaine is consumed over the weekend in 2019, based on what we, we found on the data. And you mentioned that's 20, 20% of the population of London? It's about 40%. 40? 40. 40. Okay, 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 okay. In wow. central London, it's just because of the place where we sample, they, they cover like 40% in central London. And how did that compare across Mexico and the United States, for example? When you say compare them, it's like I say, it, we can't really compare country to country. Okay. We're going to compare the catchment area that where we, where we take the sample from, like which catchment area is covered by the wastewater treatment plants. Can you compare across the population in terms of cocaine usage per, per person? I think you could. It's just that you need to do a bit of calculation there using some formula. It's not a tricky one, but the thing is, like if you say like London populations, so you need to take into account that London is the big city and it's the capital cities. There's a lot of people movement, so you need to take into account that people move in to London for work, commute to work, and then they leave London. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 tricky, but it's possible. Did you find any differences between like weekdays, Monday to Friday, in comparison to Saturday well, to Sunday? Well, yes, obviously, because weekend, especially Friday, Saturday, Sunday, is a party week. So you won't be surprised to see is a high surge of the use of illicit drugs. And that's we found it ties up with our studies, like mm-hmm. in wastewater analysis. We found out like illegal drugs usually are quite high during those periods. And funny enough, there's a recent news stated that in Hans River, based in Seoul, as in based in South Korea, somewhere close to the urban area, they found out like there's a lot of sexual enhancement drugs picked up in the area on weekend and mm-hmm. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as compared with the suburban area. So they don't really find any. So which really clearly shows that not only illegal drugs, but also <clears throat> sexually enhan- enhancement drugs you can be found within the area. Over the weekend, yeah. It's almost the study itself and also your work in terms of wastewater-based epidemiology can, can serve as such a good way of investigating the prevalence of certain ideas or, mm. or activities within a population. And I just think, is there any way that you could use this for, say, screening different sites or different nations for the use of pharmaceutical agents for depression or to, as an indicator? Yes, of yes, we can certainly extend it to, to other things to understand further, like, so what's the behavior and lifestyle in the area? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying, wastewater-based epidemiologies, it has a lot of applications. It's yet to be explored a lot because many people use it mostly on drug monitoring, illegal drug monitoring, but it has, hasn't been extended to a much further way. And also recently, they, they use it for, for COVID monitoring. It's serving as an early warning so that they know like, oh, this region, somebody might have been catching the COVID. So that would trigger some alerts saying like, oh, we need to do something within this catchment area. So what they need to be done. So yeah, certainly that, that there's a lot of application. It will not be limited to like pharmaceutical usage, mm. but other things. I mean, I know loads of people would be interested in this, and so am I. So had they developed a urinary metabolite for COVID, how were they using the the wastewater samples to identify COVID? So from what I see, they were just looking for, like, 
like a COVID marker and things like that. There's a different way of studying. There's a, there's a paper published in Newcastle University. They're looking for, they were screening the sewage sample for COVID and things like that. So there's a lot of papers that's actually available and it's been published. Mm-hmm. So it depends what sort of technique they use, I would say. Like mm-hmm. it can be any kind of like a, like a COVID DNA marker or it might be the drugs they use to treat the COVID. It can be anything. It depends on what you're actually targeting them and then what you want to analyze when you're using the analytical instruments, yeah. So is this almost room for yourselves to be in a situation where you've got the opportunity for, say, future pandemics to, to almost employ or deploy this kind of framework and use it for mapping etiology or prevalence of a disease in certain areas. And that could be based on policy. Have you had any engagement with policy with regards to using this more for legislative purposes or, or no? No. <laughs> okay, okay. Simple okay. <laughs> answer. It's a good answer. But it was worth to look at it. Like we, we wouldn't say no in futures, who knows. So, yeah, at the time, for the time being... No, not yet, yeah. That's fascinating. And I'm sure there'd be so many... Have you ever come across any form of, like, psychiatry or psychology-based researchers that would be interested in your work? Well, no, but funny enough, when we did, like, a like a site projects on the, the river I just mentioned, so basically the river also close to the hospital where the, they have a psychiatric ward. Mm-hmm. What we found out from the river sample, we, we did pick up a lot of antidepressant drugs. Mm-hmm. So that clearly shows that some of the hospital might not even, you know, um, able to treat it well before the disposal or maybe somebody just flushed down the toilet. I do not know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it is funny, like, see how, you know, well-established hospital nearby would, would, would have caused this kind of things. But obviously, we don't have evidence saying like, okay, this, this amount of antidepressant definitely from hospital, but there would be kind of a, one of the factors maybe. Or, yeah. Now you've developed your methodologies to identify compounds in wastewater samples. I suppose the next thing to ask is, what is next for this research for you and also for the group that you're involved in? Well, it's good to see like the method is working and then obviously the drugs that we're looking on the the one the drugs we have on the list, it's even though it's it seems to be a lot, it's about hundred, two hundred, but it can be expanded to more than what's been in the list on the list. So typically we, we wish to see if we can include more drugs and more screening around the the, the on, on the sample that we collected. So, and also this kind of methodologies not apply on this kind of uh, pharmaceuticals and illicit drugs. Obviously, it can be applied to a different area. So perhaps we can start looking for some some kind of maybe the illegal threats, like not just the COVID virus, but maybe something like antiviral. It could be presence and sort of things, or maybe some kind of other... Security threats, for mm-hmm. example, like chemical threats, mm-hmm. or maybe worst case scenario, the explosive threats and all these kind of things. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it and I found that conversation fascinating. 
where can people find more information about your work? I want to say my work. So um, unfortunately, I don't really have my dedicated page apart from the Imperial personal web page. To find out more about our group, we, we have the contaminants groups or teams at Imperial. So it will state like what the whole group is actually doing and what's our projects, what we are doing at the moment. Sure. It'd be cool to find it out from there. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.